Yeah, um, I don't think that we'll ever go back to normal. I think this is going to be um, kind of like 9-11. There was before 9-11, and then there was after 9-11. This is going to be before COVID and after COVID. Hello and welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and this week we're going to talk about uh, research with uh, Dr. Ginny Renkowitz, uh, who is uh, an Assistant Professor of Healthcare Administration in the College of Health Sciences and Human Services at Methodist University, and uh, she's also the Department Chair. And uh, Ginny, welcome. Thank you, Rob, for having me. And of course, it's well known that I'm also your agent, and uh, I'm delighted to be associated with you and to help you uh, continue to to spread the word on the national and international stage. I appreciate that, because normally agents take a cut, but you're doing it for free. This is all pro bono, yes, indeed. But uh, <laughs> Um, I, I've I've followed you, you and your career with great interest, and uh, of course, the other claim to fame is that we were both EMS tens in previous years, and so that's also something that uh, we have in common. I did not know that. Yeah, I don't think we were the same year, but uh, I certainly remember the the year that you uh, were awarded it, and uh, I was in the audience applauding loudly. So that was uh, exciting to see that. Well, you learn something new every day. Well, you do, you do. So we're going to talk about uh, research, but why don't you just give us a bit of a backstory of uh, of you? Um, obviously, you started in EMS and you're now in academia. So uh, fill us in on the gap. Uh, well, um, last month was my 23rd anniversary in EMS. Um, I started teaching in 2004 at Duke University, um, doing EMT classes for their students. I was a medic for the, for the predominant amount of my career at, in Durham County, um, which is where Duke University is. And um, following my kind of program directorship at Duke, um, I became a community college program director and did that for, oh, a really, really long time, 18 years, I think. Um, and now I've transitioned over into kind of the four-year academic realm um, because they will pay me to do research instead of me just doing it on the side. So, um, you know, it's been a really long, strange trip. And in doing so, you are now uh, guiding, mentoring a whole new generation of uh, EMS providers, and obviously a whole new and a whole new um, cohort of researchers and research. And I think uh, that's really exciting. And of course, you ha- have been uh, at a number of our conferences presenting posters and your findings. And so, I think, and I, you know, I'm talking from sort of ten years of going to national conferences that EMS research has come on in leaps and bounds. And uh, uh, the, the likes of you and Dr. Emily Crow and our good friend Dave Page have been instrumental in that, and, uh, and long may that continue. Also, yeah, we've um, we've been really fortunate to have some huge proponents in our profession um, really lobby and advocate for you know the placement of research in areas where people can see it at the conference. Um, Dave has been great at that, um, and. You know, our goal, I think I could I could probably speak for them on this, is just to let everybody know that research is not a four-letter word. And it's easy. It, it sounds hard and 
it looks like it might be hard because mostly it's people with PhDs that are doing it, but it's not, it's not hard at all. And it can, it can be kind of a life-changing experience if you let it. Well, perhaps we can come back after the break, as it were, and talk about how somebody gets into research. But I just have to tell you that uh, research isn't a four-letter word, but data is my favorite four-letter word. Oh, I like that. I have to put that on a t-shirt. Please quote me, because Remley (laughs) does. So uh, um, anyway, you've uh, published two papers in important uh, academic journals recently, and it I really want to get into some of that because the papers you've published, uh, I think, are worthy of discussion. And, uh, you know, you just kind of sort of laying them out. And then obviously the the actions, reactions and effects that, uh, you know, the EMS profession need to take. So I'll pick up on the first one, secondary trauma response in emergency service systems, which is the acronym STRESS project, quantifying and predicting vicarious trauma in emergency medical services personnel. Um, Well, I think probably we should start by saying that post-traumatic stress injury is not the only stress disorder that exists out there. Um, It is the one that I think it is that is most frequently cited by educators and administrators simply because we don't know about all of the other more insidious stress disorders, of which vicarious trauma is one. Vicarious trauma is uh, probably the best description uh, was given by Charles Figley in 1995. It's emotional counter-transference. So essentially, you are feeling what the patient feels when they're experiencing a traumatic event. Um, And it may manifest, you know, an example being um, if you had a call where you had a stillbirth, a patient with a stillbirth. Um, you may, for the following weeks or months, have this weird aversion to children or things in which infants are involved, uh, and you may have kind of a stress response to those situations, the same way that the patient would have. Um, Interestingly enough, I can't prove this, but this is my theory, Um, emotional neglect in childhood was a predictor of having vicarious trauma as, a, as an EMS professional. And, and my hypothesis on that is that if your parents or whomever your caregivers are do not teach you how to appropriately emotionally cope with anything, any situation, it becomes very difficult for you to know how to do it properly in your adult life. And so you may overcompensate. And that is where I think the vicarious trauma is coming in, in that population. Um, I have a particular interest in childhood trauma and how that influences our stress patterns in later life. Um, I grew up in a home that where some of that occurred and it definitely influenced me as an adult. Um, And so I wonder, was I drawn to EMS because I had this background or do we, are we just more likely to develop stress disorders once we're in EMS uh, as a result of the job? So that's kind of the focus of what my research is in in a general sense. Um, About 40% of the population that I surveyed had vicarious trauma in some form or fashion, um, a large percentage of which, I think it was 52, so 52% of the 40% scored high enough 
that they would have physical immune system responses or immune system modulation to uh, the stress disorder that they had. Um, and those could be things like uh, an increase in inflammatory cytokines, increases in cortisol. Um, and, and we all know that those things affect sleep and mood and diet and weight gain or loss. Um, and those physical manifestations can persist for up to a decade following the event. Um, and another interesting thing to come out of that particular study was that one in four EMS professionals had considered suicide at some point in their careers, and one in two knew another EMS professional who had taken their own life. Those are sobering statistics, and uh, you know a, a number of questions back at you then. So, in in terms of if somebody is predisposed to this, as you suggest, they might be coming into, you know, the EMS profession. Uh, how can one? I suppose self-diagnose is the wrong wrong term, but how can how can you identify that? How can an employer or a supervisor or someone that cares about you identify those, uh, you know, those, I guess, existing. Um, traits, conditions? Um, I think the easiest thing is to educate yourself that these more kind of insidious stress disorders exist. Vicarious trauma is not the only one. Um, There's compassion fatigue, there's burnout, um, and they all kind of have similar symptomatology. But some of these things can be very covert. I mean, uh, one of the symptoms is irritability, lack of sleep, Um, changes in appetite, changes in mood. And you can get that just from, you know, having a long shift and not getting a nap. So, um, you know, familiarizing oneself with what the symptoms are, what that person has experienced, and ensuring that that person has an emotional outlet to process those experiences in a healthy way, I think is probably the best that we can do um, at the moment. I think pre-evaluation coming into the job is kind of a slippery slope um, because if it's used incorrectly, then it's discriminatory, right? Instead of being helpful. So, you know, I think encouraging the, the cultural shift in the environment of EMS Uh, that therapy is okay, not being okay is okay, asking for help is okay, crying is okay if that's what you need to do, going home, taking time off, um, you know, having a session with a therapy dog or going to work out. Those are all things that we need to promote within the profession and and make those things okay so that we're not self-isolating. Those are exceptionally wise words and tips, and uh, I just need to tell you and everybody listening that uh, if you go back through the catalogue, particularly onto the Inside EMS catalogue, myself and Kelly Grayson had as a guest uh, Rhonda Kelly from GMR and Dr. Ed Rock, and uh, she gave a great description of the therapy dog programme that uh, GMR have. They have 30-plus therapy dogs around their locations, and actually not only for their own employees, but they also go out as part of the the task force work that they do um and so you know that's that's it's a, it's, it's a great pickup there um Ginny because uh Rhonda talks exceptionally highly of that and the results that it actually gets there was a yeah there's a uh 
I met I met her a couple years ago at the conference. She presented her work, a Guilford County EMS paramedic in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, that um, instituted a therapy dog program in her organization and then did some research on it and showed how beneficial it was. Um, and we're starting to see those pop up quite a bit around North Carolina. Excellent. So just before we close off this particular paper, um, in terms of what can those leading I, I hate the word management. I'm not going to use it. Those leading EMS can do. Is there a toolkit? Is there advice? What are the next steps from the results of your of your work? So I, there are plenty of people who are looking at researchers that are looking at resilience training um, and programs within uh, the profession that can kind of help to mitigate these things from an employer perspective or catch them from an employer perspective. Um, so I would, you know, I think resiliency training is probably next up uh, on the list, you know, ensuring that we can prime the pump, so to speak, to, to keep these things from happening and ensure that our folks are healthy and safe um, and they're not compromised. We're always going to have terrible calls. That's, that's never going to not be a thing. Um, right. And so, but if we are healthy and we're able to process these things in a healthy way before we get to those calls, it, it might be less likely that we um, develop things like, you know, stress disorders and post-traumatic stress injury. Uh, for me, my focus is more on the origin story. I, you know, I want to understand what are all the things, uh, is it childhood trauma? Is it military service? Is it race-based traumatic stress, generational trauma. I want to understand how all of those things create somebody who is more likely to have a stress disorder. Because if we truly understand the foundation of the problem, then we can really target our interventions for our personnel so that they maximize health, mental health. Thank you for that. And uh, also... Everybody in the show notes will put the link to all the content that was produced from the uh, Lexapol Wellness Week. Of course, Police, Fire and EMS uh, titles under Lexapol had a combined Wellness Week. There is a raft of resources on the EMS side. I mentioned uh, Rhonda Kelly and Dr. Ed Rock. Uh, we also had some great discussions with uh, Mike Tegman. Um, and also some some written articles as well, and obviously uh, some uh, the the Rob Lawrence uh, EMS bedtime story talking about uh, sleep deprivation and and discussions with Dan Patterson. So it's all in there. Um, do go back and use that as as a reference, Ginny. Before we carry on, uh, time has flown by. We're just going to stop and have a quick message from our sponsor. This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. So we're back with uh, Dr. Ginny Renkowitz. Uh, we've been talking about uh, one of her papers recently published. Next up is maladaptive cognitions in EMS professionals as a function of the COVID-19 pandemic. My first question to you, Ginny, is what does that mean? Um, all right. Well, I think the easiest thing is to say that a maladaptive cognition is a precursor uh, to moral injury, which is uh, when, in this case, an EMS professional might be acutely traumatized uh, by something like, say, perilous workforce conditions resulting from the pandemic. Um, and it 
overwhelms their belief structures to the point where they have to kind of adapt and adjust. Uh, and that adaptation that comes from something negative is moral injury. So that psychological response happens in kind of two stages. First, those are the, there are the, what are called the primary emotions that result from the reaction to the actual thing. You know, I'm treating patients in the pandemic um, with, you know, a lack of PPE and a lack of guidance. And, and, you know, that's not just from the agency, but even federally. Um, And then the secondary piece is their interpretation of what they experienced. So they have to experience it, they feel something, and then they then have to interpret what they are feeling about that event. Um, So when those things happen, they are essentially morally injured, and those moral injuries then become a precursor to the development of stress disorders like post-traumatic stress injury or complex post-traumatic stress injury. I mean, I can see the connection with the previous paper we discussed, but wasn't this one also published in by well, the Special Operations Medical Journal? Yes. Um, and I felt like, first of all, I love publishing in JSOM. They're, they're a great outfit. Um, and just to plug the, the prior journal was British Paramedic Journal, and they, that was my first time working with them, and they were really great too. Um, I, I felt like this paper really fit JSOM's mission because – this for EMS, I mean, EMS is an austere working environment in general anyway, but now we've become like extra super duper austere as a result of working in the pandemic and having to reuse PPE and not being able to transport certain patients because of, you know, potential dangerous. What am I trying to say here, Rob? I think what you're trying to say is, and uh, I hadn't made that connection. I, I'm, as you know, I'm an ex-military guy, and uh, right. you know the austere working environment of of what a, a veteran would call downrange has been replicated in the pandemic by the, the the medic and his or her partner in the truck alone, having to deal with extreme uncertainty and immense danger because the patient you're looking at could actually kill you and your family when you go home. Yes. And not only that, I mean, there were plenty of times where patients were unable to be transported um, and they had to be treated where they were. And these are patients who probably who should have been transported and had to be left behind. And those are those are choices I don't think American first responders have really had to make since Hurricane Katrina. And you know, Hurricane Katrina was such a an isolated event in terms of the fact that it only affected one small geographic area and not the entire world. Right, and and so th- there is that crossover, which which I can see exactly why uh, they, they they picked up this particular article and uh, and published it. Um, again, learning conclusions and takeaways. I mean, what what are you, what are you suggesting? What do you suggest? So the study took. Um, an instrument called the post-traumatic maladaptive belief scale or the PMBS um, and identified how maladaptive an individual's coping was. The higher the number, the worse the coping skills, essentially. Um, The mean score was roughly 37. um, And the score itself, the instrument itself ranges from 15 to 93. Um, 
and we saw higher scores in those who um, self-reported that they had higher levels of anxiety, who considered their primary sources of information about the pandemic to be reliable, and those who reported to work when they were sick with cold or flu-like symptoms. Um, we also wanted to figure out how much the pandemic contributed to maladaptive coping. Was it, was it the pandemic specifically, or was it all this other stuff that we just deal with normally? And in terms of the model that we built, 11% of the variance in the score was due solely to the pandemic. Um, and then we had psychological factors, you know, kind of the secondary piece resulting from exposure to the pandemic that accounted for an additional almost 5%. So we're looking at, you know, 15% of our maladaptive coping in this particular population at this particular time was due to the pandemic and their resulting feelings about it. Um, that makes maladaptive cognition and EMS a big concern um, because it is a precursor for moral injury and subsequently things that are much more serious. Um, so it's, it's not, I think we would have seen the same or higher results in those folks who um, served at 9-11 um, at ground zero. And we see now that a lot of mental illness has resulted from the first responders who were there. Um, and I think we're going to see a similar pattern in those who treated patients during COVID. So we need to be prepared for that. And that's, you know, unfortunately it's going to require a lot of healthcare and it's probably going to look like people leaving the field. And we've, we're already seeing that people who've gotten so stressed out from, what they have experienced during the pandemic that they just can't do it anymore. So it may result in a workplace shortage. I was going to come back on the recruiting and retention piece, actually, because if you look at a lot of the NEMT and the AAA uh, surveys that have gone on in the last couple of years, they will tell you that, you know, on average, you know, 30% of your workforce rotates in and out every, you know, two or three years. So theoretically, we have a whole cohort of staff out there that have operated an EMS in nothing but pandemic conditions. So they arrived in that austere environment in, you know, the, 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 the chaos and the disorganization of trying to deliver EMS in the pandemic. And so, you know, we have to look after them. We have to take care of them. Now, hopefully, what am I saying here is that the, the, theoretically the public health emergency ends uh, in May 2023. Whoops, that's now coming up. And we get back, quote, to normal. And so we have to, you know, deal with the, the, the aftermath of of what's just happened. And so you're right. There's a lot of work to do um, for people that have had nothing but this chaotic uh, pandemic experience in their work, you know, resume, if you, if you like. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we'll ever go back to normal. I think this is going to be um, kind of like 9-11. There was before 9-11 and then there was after 9-11. This is going to be before COVID and after COVID because we still have so many patients getting sick and so many people suffering now from long COVID, which we don't know a whole lot about. And, you know, our responders are still in this environment, in this unpredictability with their call volume that can't be controlled in any way. And 
they're often in toxic work conditions um, in terms of toxic leadership or incivility at work. And those are things that absolutely can be controlled and can lessen the stress on the responder. Can't do anything about the calls they run, um, but you can do something about the environment in which they run them. It's a well-known fact that people will say they don't leave an organization, they leave their bosses. And so what what am I saying here is that if you're a leader, if you're a supervisor, if you're a manager, if you're in the corner office, pastoral care and looking after your people is more important now than it ever was. And uh, I had the, the Padres from Alina on a, on a few weeks ago, who, uh, again, I'm a massive uh, proponent of chaplaincy and EMS. But uh, again, everything you can do in your toolbox and your toolkit to look after your people, you must do it. If you weren't doing it before, shame on you, but you've got to do it now. Agreed. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a leader. You know, I'm, I've been in administration for almost 20 years. And the single most important thing are the people in your employ. That's it. Your business doesn't run without them. And if they're miserable and tired and unhappy and stressed out and burnout, they're not going to perform adequately. And that's just going to, I mean, if you, if you want to look at it objectively, that's just going to hurt the business. Um, but if you're in a leadership position, you should want your people to be happy. You should want them to be successful and you should want them to maximize their own personal goals and, and opportunities that makes them happier, healthier, better employees. It it seems like a, a no brainer to me. The conditions that we've encountered, uh, out there in, in pandemic land are one thing and obviously possibly unavoidable. But looking after the people before they deploy, when they're deployed and when they come back is an absolutely crucial function. And so uh, thank you for for making those points that you did. Um, Just to kind of round up, uh, you've also been doing, you know, work on suicide prevention. I know you're a part of the NHTSA Office of EMS listening group. Um, So what are the other things that you and like-minded colleagues are up to right now? Well, I have to give a shout out to Kate Elkins from the uh, NHTSA Office of EMS. Um, She has been phenomenal at pulling together kind of thought leaders in EMS and 911 and bringing us all together uh, in collaboration and and just listening um, to see what it is that we can do. Um, You know, I know there are researchers that are working on resiliency. I know there are so many people out there creating peer support programs. Um, I have to throw a shout out to Dina Ali, who is a captain in the Raleigh fire department. She's doing an enormous amount of work with peer support and, um, the prevention of incivility in the fire service. Um, you know, my goal is to study the origin story and and look at all the kind of concomitant factors. Um, there are so many people out there doing so many things, um, so hopefully that will create a body of literature, you know, where we can start to make some serious recommendations about targeted interventions that can help our personnel. I'd like to join in that shout out to, to Kate in particular. Um, she's she'll listen to this, and uh, we are on a on a OEMS call once every two weeks, so uh, we have regular contact. And uh, what a what a stellar person to have at the top of our profession um, at OEMS. Um, Let's just finish, uh, Ginny, talk about research. If you are a paramedic, EMT, uh, 
employee listening to this right now and you hadn't thought about research before, how do you get involved? Where do you start? Well, there's there's several different ways. Um, I personally uh, am the executive director of a little research foundation. Uh, we have an event every year that's a two-day uh, research summit at our state conference, and we'll bring you in, we'll teach you all about research, and you'll develop and write up your very own research project using real data in the span of two days. Um, shout out to ESO for providing the data for us. Um, and that's a great partnership that we have with Remley Crow and Tony Hernandez over there, Fernandez, sorry, over there at ESO. Um, ESO does their own little event as well, um, where you can go and learn about research. FISDAP does a research summit every year. Um, although the caveat to that is it is, it's in February in Minnesota. So pack your winter coat. Uh, and then the pre-hospital care research form in UCLA will travel. Uh, they will bring researchers to your area and they will do symposiums for you uh, to help folks learn about research. So there are so many opportunities out there if you don't want to go back to grad school, because that's really kind of the formal way to do it, right, is to, is to start in graduate school and then, um, you know, do a gigantic dissertation um, because you're a masochist <laughs> as part of your doctorate. <laughs> um, so you can, you can totally go that route. I did. Uh, it's not as painful as I just made it sound. Uh, it was quite fun actually, but, um, you know, in, in lieu of not wanting to devote that much time or money to formal schooling, you know, there's, there's so many opportunities out there to get involved. And if you don't know where to start, uh, I hope Rob will post some contact information. You are welcome to email me, and I will help you however I can. Well, we're going to come on to that in a second. But uh, but Rob's uh, top tip for leaders out there is that uh, we'll come back to my favorite four-letter word, right, Ginny? So data. EMS is awash with data. Um, and, of course, you need to process it and turn it into an intelligence product in order to act on it. And my top tip is every summer I would have a uh, public health intern um, luckily, over in Richmond, we had a public health uh, faculty, and uh, I would take uh, public M MPH students, and we would let them loose on our data. We would discuss a hypothesis and a problem, and they would come back with an answer. And of course, they would have a paper, and it would it all worked swimmingly well. And so, there are people out there looking for things to do like that. And particularly if you're in a, an area with a university and there's a public health faculty explore that because it's a chance for somebody to look at, you know, if you have very pointed and discrete problems, they can come in and look at it for you. And actually collectively you can then, so I, I you know, be, became mentor PI uh, to a number of, number of papers that were written uh, and it was great fun and also great results as well. And so that's my, uh, my recommendation for those uh, in the corner offices listening, there's MPH folk out there looking for stuff to do. Yeah, there's um, you know, and there are people like me, out there. Um, you know, the, the NAEMT is in their second year of the Lighthouse Leadership Program, so you could apply to be a mentee. Um, and some of the folks that are mentors in that program are prolific researchers. Um, and one of their requirements is that you do a capstone project. So you could just say, well, I want to do a research study. Uh, and those folks can mentor you through that. Um, or you can just find a mentor in EMS um, who has access to the tools that you'd need. And folks like us who have published quite a bit, we're going to make sure that you get your name on the paper first. 
because you need the publication more than we do. So, you know, we want you to have that experience and do that work um, in a way that fosters you to want to continue to do it in the future. Well, do you know what? You've just given me the great way to end this, and that's the plug of the uh, NAMT Lighthouse Leadership Project, because mentors this year include the likes of Renkowitz and Lawrence. That's right. Uh, And uh, like you, I've just gotten the name and the introduction to my mentee for the year. And I'm really excited to be a part of that person's, you know, future journey, as I'm sure you are with your uh, your mentee. And perhaps we'll we'll get those folk on onto this podcast uh, to talk about that. But uh, again, it's it's great opportunities, and if you're out there, there's plenty of. And we'll put all of those resources, Ginny, by the way, into the show notes, so you can click through and follow up on them. So finally, how can we follow you on social media or wherever, and how can we get in touch with you? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um... You know, I will say that Rob will probably type my name somewhere in the title of the podcast or in the notes, um, because if you try to spell it on your own, you're never going to find me. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Cranky Pants with a K. Um, LinkedIn is fine. Uh, and then you can certainly email me. Uh, my uh, email is grankowitz at methodist.edu. Um, and, you know, please, if you have any questions or want to get involved in research, by all means, contact me. I never say no to a research project. You just reminded me of, of, of the great one-liner from that other PhD, uh, Ray Barashansky, who had always introduced himself as Ray Barashansky, common spelling. Yeah, right. So perhaps you can you can pull that one, right? Well, his middle but, initial is M, so I call him Dr. Majestic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Ray Ray, we love you. And also uh, Dr. Ginny Renkowitz, a.k.a. Dr. Cranky Pants, we love you too. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, all the references we talked about will be in the show notes. And before I go, it would be remiss of me to say that if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. And those platforms, by the way, we are on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Amazon Music. So there's no excuse for not finding us and listening to us and listening to this amazing discussion um, with Dr. Ginny. So Ginny, I know there will be a next time. So for the moment, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Rob. It was my pleasure, truly. Good. Well, don't forget, you can follow me on LinkedIn and also on Twitter. I'm UKRobL1. Or if you like walking, follow my uh, hike vlog channel on YouTube because uh, I'm out there every weekend. Uh, that's my de-stressor, by the way. So I've been Rob Lawrence. This has been EMS One Stop. And until next time, bye for now.